Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> What's up, y'all? Hey, I'm sorry. Let me let me just start off by apologizing because it has been far too long since I've dropped a podcast episode. But in my defense, your boy started a new job. And that week I started a new job, I decided to be one of the few people in America that caught the flu. Yeah, I know y'all, but I'm better. I'm good. Start this new job. I won't jump into that right now, but in a later podcast, I will talk more about that. Look, I've had folks hitting me up like, man, when will we get another episode of my black book journal? And so I'm sorry, y'all, that it's been so long, but I wanted to go ahead and drop another episode. Look, I'm not reviewing a book right now, but I am talking about a, a sermon. I am dropping a sermon that that I recently did on Pentecost Sunday a couple weeks ago that I'm really excited to share with you all. It's really based around a, a sermon that um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave about being a transformed nonconformist. And I recently read a book by Adam Taylor, the president of uh, Sojourners. And that book was written about 10 years ago, and it was called uh, Motivating or Mobilizing for Hope. And so I hope y'all enjoy it. I'm really excited. Shout out to my guy, Jared, for hitting me up like, man, when we going to get another episode? So, Jared, and this right here is for you. I apologize. It's taking so long. Remember, you can follow us on at uh, on Facebook or Instagram at My Black Book Journal. Again, Facebook, Instagram, My Black Book Journal. Check out our website at www.actjustlylovemercy.org or hit me up at Danny B. That's D-A-N-N-Y, the letter B, at actjustlylovemercy.org. Send me an email. I would love to hear from you all. Look, we're going to go ahead and jump into it. I hope that y'all enjoy this message that I had an opportunity to share. And as always, if you enjoy it, remember to rate, subscribe, and review. I'll see you soon. And I can't wait. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm a hype. Y'all probably see it. Let me calm down a little bit. All right, here we go. I want y'all to know that we have an exciting summer planned out for y'all. And we have podcasts lined up, episodes lined up to drop. Um, I had a um, a New York Times bestselling author reach out. Well, he didn't reach out, you know, but his publicist and his team reached out about reviewing his book. And I can't wait for you all to hear that interview once we do it. I'm excited about the book. It's it's a book, y'all. It's, it's, it's some stuff going on in this book that we really need to talk about, and we're not going to shy away from it on My Black Book Journal. Um, we're going to dive into it. Look, but before that, we're going to go ahead and jump into this episode. Like I said, remember to rate, subscribe, and review, and I'd love to hear from you all. All right, I'm out. Hope you enjoy. Peace. I am preaching from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 through the Christian Standard Bible. All right. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of God. Thanks be to God. You all can be seated. You all can be seated. 
So before I jump into this, I want to share a quick story that I was reminded of as I was sitting in worship this morning. Um, so I came to Harvest actually just by by chance. I was I was transitioning out of leading a church plant for about three and a half years, and I was looking for a place that I could go that my soul could be refreshed. Um, I had been laboring for a while, and and that's another sermon. Um, but a friend told me about Pastor Mike, and I listened. I think I may have pulled up something on YouTube, listened to a sermon. And I came in that first Sunday, August 2019, and sat right back there on this side and was so refreshed by the worship and the kindness and the word that went forth. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful, right, almost two years later, that the Lord saw fit to lead my family and I to this place because it was just what we needed at that time. It was a it was a place for a weary soul to rest and to regain my focus on the Lord. And, um, you know, that as I was thinking about that, it, it really transitioned well into um, the passage of scripture that I'm talking about today, because many times in life, we will be forced to make life altering decisions. And for me, the decision to come to harvest at that time was a life altering decision. I'll tell you why in a moment. You know, a lot of times we're presented with information, facts, evidence, either for or against something. And we have to decide which direction we'll go. You know, every day, scientists say that we make thousands of choices, right? We decide, we make a choice on what direction we'll drive in to work. We make a choice about what clothes we'll put on. We make choices about what we'll eat for breakfast or lunch or dinner. But there are a few, a handful of decisions that we'll make throughout our lives that will be defining moments Right. Whether that be where to live or who to marry or if I should take this job out of town or how many kids I want to have. Right. There are some life defining moments. And if we're fortunate, if we're intentional and if we're willing to be humble, we will invite others to speak into those moments, whether it's a pastor or a trusted friend. Maybe it's a spouse, a leader or a mentor that we may have. These people can serve as guides as we navigate the challenges and choices of our lives. Well, here in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul is serving as a pastor and as a mentor to the church in Rome, but also to us in Birmingham, Alabama at Harvest Community Church. He spent time throughout the book of Romans building this case, talking to us about how all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He, he speaks to us about this gift that we've received by Christ Jesus that has made us righteous. And now he gets to a point where he tells us that in light of everything that God has done for us, we need to make a decision. And he doesn't want there to be any confusion about what decision he wants us to make. So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul first starts off by reminding us of who we are. He says we are brothers and sisters, reminding us of the fact that we are children of God and members of God's family. We are brothers and sisters united together through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. We have been brought into the family of God and God has lavished his love upon us. 
John tells us, oh, what love the father has lavished upon us that we may be called children of God. We are deeply loved. And to under, we must understand this if we are to understand the command that Paul is about to give us. He moves into this plea. But first he says, in view of the mercies of God, let's pause there really quickly before we go on. What are the mercies of God and why should God's mercy be the reason that we make such a life altering decision? So let me give you guys really quickly a framework that I use and that's been really helpful for me on my journey of discipleship. Right. Here's my framework. I first start with who is God? Then I move to in light of who God is, what has he done? Then who am I? And then what should I do? Y'all with me? Y'all tracking with me? All right. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And now what do I do in light of that? Brothers and sisters, this is how we must read and engage scripture. Right. We must first start not with the question, who am I? But who is God? What has he done? And now in light of who God is, what he's done, who am I? My identity. And now birth out of my identity in Christ. What then should I do? So let's start with who God is looking at his mercies. The Bible tells us that God is merciful. Mercy is loyal love, which is a key attribute of who God is. When God wanted to reveal himself to his servant Moses, when Moses cried out and said, God, show me your face. Let me behold your glory. God said, all right, I'm going to hide you. Then I'm going to let my back and my glory pass before you. And after he did this, this is what happened. According to Exodus 34 verses four through seven, it says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God could have said a thousand things about himself in that moment when he passed before Moses. But what he decided to focus on was his mercy and his grace and his mercy that he keeps for thousands and not only for individuals, but for generations. This is who God is. He is eternally faithful, gracious, and merciful. So who is God? He is merciful. All right, in light of that, what has he done? So God is not only merciful, but he also does mercifully. He is moved to act in accordance with his nature. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 5, it tells us a bit about how God acts mercifully, right? And it looks at us and then says, this is what God does. And it, it, it says, and you, but I'm going to say, and we, because I'm, in, I'm incorporated in this. And it says, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. 
You are saved by grace. So Paul spends a little bit of time giving us the fact that we were separated from God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the prince of disobedience. We went our own way. But God intervened because of his mercy. And he intervened because he had enough mercy to intervene. You with me? Because anything that God is, he has an abundance of. Right. So if God is love, he has an abundance of love. If God is just, he has an abundance of justice. If God is kind, he has an abundance of kindness. And if God is merciful, then he has abundance of it. So it causes him to step in into our misery and in our mess. And though we were dead in our trespasses and sins with Jesus Christ, the father raises us up out of his kindness, out of his grace and out of his love. So that's what God has done for us, right? According to his mercy, he has revealed himself to be merciful. He has acted mercifully. And now in light of that, who are we? Well, we are the direct beneficiaries of that mercy. We were dead, as I said, in trespass and sin. But we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. We have been raised to the newness of life. And we have by grace through faith entered into a eternal relationship with him. We, at one point, brothers and sisters, as Paul would say, we were spiritually dead and we were spiritual orphans, but we have been now adopted and brought into a family together with one another. Did we do anything to earn this? No. That is why the gift is of grace. And did we deserve this? No. That is why the gift is motivated by mercy. So let's get back into Romans 12, 1 through 2. Now we have that framework in mind and we'll dive into that last part. So our mentor, Paul's advice in light of all of God's mercies, y'all with me on all of God's mercies? He urges us now to present your bodies, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is our true worship or our spiritual act of worship, right? So let's break that down really, really quickly, all right? Because suffice it to say that offering our lives in total devotion to God is a right response to everything that God has already done for us. We are called to, right? So who is God? What has he done? Who are we? And now what do we do? We are called to both doxology and missiology, both worship and mission, right? We are called to offer up our lives to God because this is our true worship. Now, I asked my daughter a question. I said, all right, I want to get a little feedback on this verse. What does it mean for you to offer up your life to God as worship? She was like, huh? Worship. You mean like, what do you mean? Like worship, like I got my hands lifted worship. Like, what exactly do you mean when you say lifting, giving over my life to God as worship? So we had to spend a little time. We had to spend a little time. And, 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 and in this, we need to spend a little bit of time because it's important that we understand why what we have just done, lifting up our voices and our hearts and our worship and our, and our praise and our adoration, and our thanksgiving and, and singing the scripture and crying out all that God has done and praising him for all of that. While that is beautiful and we are called to do that, that is only one aspect of what worship is. 
When we come together and unite together and sing God's praises, that is beautiful. But that is one aspect of what true worship really is. Another part of what true worship is, is living. We are called not only to come in here and sing and, and, and read the scripture and lift up our hands or have our own quiet or private time with the Lord that God steps in and he intervenes and we feel like, oh, I love you, Lord. I love these times with you. This is so great. And then we leave that. Like I just had this mountaintop experience. That was great. And then I go on and move on with the rest of my life. While those moments are beautiful, we are called that at every moment of every day, we acknowledge the fact that our lives, our very lives belong to the Lord. The Bible says that our lives give off a fragrance. Did you know that? That your life gives off a fragrance to God and the world. It either gives off the fragrance of life or death. One is this beautiful aroma testifying to the goodness, grace, and mercy of God. And the other one, we'll get to that in a moment. So Paul says, Paul says, after he, 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 he reminds us that in light of the mercies of God to present your body, he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. So I, I love y'all. Y'all have heard countless sermons on this passage of scripture. You, you've read countless of things. There's been countless songs written about it, which is great because the word of God is inexhaustible. If God has an abundance of anything, his word speaks throughout every generation to every generation, every nation, every people group, every tribe and every language. But one sermon really sticks out to me on this passage of scripture, and that comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He once gave this sermon entitled Transformed Nonconformist. And he preached and he said this. This hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of atomic annihilation, dangerous passions and pride, hatred and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. Truth lies prostrate, uh, prostrate on the rugged hills of nameless calvaries and men do reverence before false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. In this sermon, in that passage, Dr. King was able to discern the spirit of his age and connect that to how the world was seeking to conform believers into its own image. You see, in every generation, we as followers and the people of God must wrestle with the values of the world and how those values have shaped us. Some of us grew up in Christian households where most of what we received was non-conforming, transformational truth. Truth that was both taught, demonstrated, and lived out. We saw it in our families, we saw it in our communities, and we saw it on our workplaces. But for the vast majority of us, we have been affected and conformed in the image of the world in some way. And I'm going to demonstrate this for you all in some way. Do you all know, for my scientific people, my nurses, my doctors and everybody, y'all can, can fact check me on this. Do you all know that unless a baby 
sees other people walking and speaking, they will neither learn to walk or speak. Did you know that? Right? That is not just something people, that, that babies do on their own. It is something that they mimic. Right? Because they see people mobile and moving around and they can go from one place to another and they communicate a little bit better than I do and they get the needs met because all I can do is why and that gets me either changed or fed or get put to sleep or burnt, right? But, but, there are, but I see people interacting and moving and so that child learns to crawl and roll over and then crawl and then pull itself up and then try to stand and then begin to walk and then fall a little bit and then starts with little gurgling noises. But it's all in an effort to try to communicate and move around. Right. So the environment that that child is raised in my education, folks, that environment that a child is raised in plays a large role on the outcomes that that child will have. Right. On what that child will be able to do. It's important. Just throw this in there for my education folks. That's why it's important to talk to your child. And I just sit them in front of the television. I'll be back on this. All right. All right. Because your environment is important. Right. Just as that environment is important for that child. So is our environment important for us. Right. Because sometimes we find ourselves in environments that are conforming us and not transforming us. Right? That are molding us into the image of something that, that we that will either be beneficial or detrimental to us. Right. And so for a, a child can be in a very positive, loving environment that will allow that child to thrive. Or unfortunately, there are children that are in very dangerous, hurtful environments that, that put their safety um, at concern all the time. And so we as believers have now been told, right, Paul says, I want you to be transformed and not to conform. All right. So this is important because I I need to break down a word for you all, because I I grew up in church, y'all. I've heard the word world in church so often. I never really knew what it meant, though. Right. So everybody was talking about the world. And I'm like, the place we live, like what? What do you mean the world? Like what is like the world's a bad place and why are we in the world? Right. And so I like how Dr. Tony Evans talks about the world. He simply defines it in Christian speak as the system that leaves God out. Right. Simple enough. Right. It, it, it is a system of beliefs, of actions, a culture that leaves God out, that acts as though God does not exist or that God is not telling the truth. Right. So now that we define what the world is, it is important to now look at what Paul is saying. He says, do not be conformed to this age or to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So King in King's Day, as we read this quote, the temptation that Christians and other people were pulled towards, he says, were passions and pride, hatred and selfishness. He said people were giving themselves over to nationalism and materialism. And in our day, we are faced with the same temptations and struggles. We see a divided church that can't really agree on if the people of God who have been called out by God should engage in the fight against systemic injustice or entrenched hatred. 
We spend more time arguing over critical race theory and Christian nationalism and social justice, police and criminal justice reform, sex trafficking, pornography, abortion, immigration, housing issues, education, inequality, and reform than actually doing anything as a transformed nonconformist. We get more comfortable speaking about these things, debating in these echo chambers without actually engaging the world in a different way. And as believers, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we more concerned about debating among, our, among ourselves or about being about the work of Pentecost? About the work of change and transformation where the gospel has the ability and the power to transform lives. Where people have one perception about who we are, they're drunk, they're filled with wine. Like, bro, it's nine o'clock, I ain't been drinking. Or to where they are now asking, what must I do to be saved? Where they have now surrendered their lives to the gospel and been baptized. That is the power of the gospel, but we as transformed nonconformists must do a couple things. So first, Paul says, we have to start with the renewing of our minds. And look, y'all, this is important, because if we are going to have any measure of effectiveness and fruitfulness in our witness and in our living, we are going to have to surrender our minds over to the Lord. And I must share this with you really quickly, that one thing we don't always do a good job of as preachers is telling you just how difficult that can be. The reason being is that truth is hard. So the truth is violent, y'all. And I have to let you all know that because I learned that lesson the hard way. Because the truth violently confronts lies. And it makes you make a decision. It forces you into a decision because the truth says, if this is true, then what are you going to do with it? That's why Paul could say, hey, let God be true and every man be a lie. Because, because he knew God is the truth. Jesus says, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So he acts in accordance with that, right? So then we respond to his truth, become, and we become truth tellers. But that's important because every day we will have to wrestle with the fact that many of us have built lies, lives on lies. And then even though people in our lives may have had the best of intentions, what they may have taught us led to a thriving life was actually a lie. I, like I said, I grew up in church. And I remember the more the spirit opened my eyes and my heart to engage this word, the more sermons that I heard about the word, I realized I felt like I'd been lied to my entire life. That's a very difficult feeling to have because it's hard because now you feel like you have to go through the work of uprooting and planting. And we're not alone on that journey. The Lord is with us. He has given us his spirit. He is doing that work in us. But to live as a transformed nonconformist first must mean that we have been transformed. And we are only transformed by the truth penetrating our minds. So we need to heed God's call of being a transformed nonconformist in every area of life. So let me hit a couple before I close. As a global citizen, how does the truth of the gospel and not only our personal opinions call us to engage and act? How do we steward the world and environment we've been given? 
How can we seek justice not only for ourselves or our immediate family, but for all? As fathers and mothers, how does the gospel speak to how we raise and love our children? Does the Bible have anything to say about it at all? Of course it does. What about as a husband or as a wife? Does the Bible speak to how we're supposed to live and the values we're supposed to carry with us in those areas? What about as an employee or an employer? Does God care about how we interact and engage on our workplace? Or does God care about how we treat our employees? These are things that the Bible speaks to, and we must do the hard work of seeing how so that in the living of life, we are pleasing God. That God speaks to our relationships and our actions both individually and as a community and a society. Beloved, because our mentor Paul wants us to be able to do this, right? He wants, he he gives us this. He says, in light of God's mercies, present yourself, do all these things. Because he wants us to be able to do this. He wants us to be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's what God wants. He wants you to know what's really best for you. I remember a few years, several years ago, that book, Your Best Life Now, came out. I'm not really going to dive into the book. I'm just going to talk about that in order to live your best life now, Paul says you got to know God's mercy. You got to die to yourself. You got to present yourself to God. You cannot be conformed to this world, but you have to transform your mind by the word of God. You want to live an effective, fruitful life. That is how we do it. And if y'all see what we did, we walked through the tools to be able to do that. Because as we approach God's word, no matter what area of our life it may be, we can ask, well, who is God in this area? But what has he done as a father? Okay, now who am I? And now what do I do? And in every area of your life, you can walk through those things, feeling equipped to live life as a transformed nonconformist. I'll say this and I will close. Dr. King goes on to say, honesty impels me to admit that transformed nonconformity, which is always costly and never altogether comfortable, may mean walking through the valley of the shadow of death and suffering, losing a job or having a six year old daughter ask, Daddy. Why do you have to go to jail so much? But we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up their cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to be more excellent, to the more excellent way that comes only through suffering. In these days of worldwide confusion, there is dire need for men and women who will courageously do battle for truth and live as transformed nonconformists. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that as... As the Father sent you, you have sent us, Lord, and you have equipped us with the wisdom, the knowledge, the tools, your word, Lord, to live faithfully to you, to heed your word. You have made it known to us how you would want us to live, Father God. 
So God, in, the, in our day, Lord, whether, whatever, as we celebrated graduates today, Lord, no matter where we find ourselves transitioning either to middle school or high school or college or post-college into the workplace, Father God, I pray that we would know that you called us into whatever place you're sending us, Lord, to be a transformed nonconformist, Lord, that we would go and do the work of carrying truth with us, Lord. Thank you, Father God, that you have called us, Lord, to life. Father God, I pray, Lord, for anyone who feels confronted, Lord, by truth today. God, because the lies of this world has been weighing them down. Father God, I pray that they would know that in you there is truth, in you there is light, and in you there is peace. And God, that we could take rest in that peace, and we can take rest in you, knowing that in truth we find freedom. So God, let our hearts be surrendered to you. Let our minds be surrendered to you. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you in your sight. O oh Lord, our God, our strength and our redeemer. In your son's name I pray. Amen.